This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Daniel Rundy, who is a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and director of the Project on Prosperity and Development. They discuss Mr. Rundy's new book entitled The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. They also discuss the ongoing global challenges posed by China, the war in Ukraine, and how these conflicts call for greater American leadership through soft power. Dan Rundy, welcome to the show. Roger, I'm so happy to be here. I love the Reagan Library. I love the Reagan Foundation. I'm thrilled to be on your podcast. Thanks, Roger. Well, we're so glad to have you. you're renowned, certainly, uh, within the Beltway. You're a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, known as CSIS. Uh, you've worked in the Bush administration, Bush 43, that is, the World Bank. You're here today uh, because what's over your, your right shoulder there, you're the author of The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. Uh, congratulations on this book. Give us a perspective in terms of what led you to write this book and, um, you know, kind of how, how the whole experience was pushing this out. Oh my gosh, Roger, it's a lot harder than people realize. It's a, it was my COVID project. I had a couple COVID projects. One of them was to help get my middle kid as Eagle Scout and be his Eagle Scout Sherpa, which I did. <laughs> I was, I was my oldest kid's college Sherpa and help kind of help him with that process. And my third project was uh, write this book. I'd been in Washington for 20 years. I'd worked at AID. I'd worked at the World Bank Group. I'd been in a think tank for 12 years. I'd done 400 seminars and 400 public events and a whole bunch of papers. So I had a whole bunch of content. I figured I had something to say. But putting that all in a book is a lot harder than one thinks. And then the other thing that I didn't realize until I kind of got into it is one thing is to produce a book. Another is to then go out and socialize the book. So I'm so appreciative to ha- for you to have me on your podcast. My goal is to do 100 book talks. This is my 66th wow. today. And so my goal is to have about 100 to 150,000 Americans, or probably more, maybe 200,000 Americans, kind of interact with the ideas of my book. Uh, sure, would I love 200,000 Americans to buy retail my book? Of course, go out and buy The American Imperative on Amazon or go buy it, you know, somewhere else, I'd be thrilled. But I really care about socializing the ideas. And so the reason I wrote this book was, in addition to the fact that I've been in Washington for 20 years, is we're in a new age. We're in an age of great power competition. And that competition isn't going to play out necessarily in China, not necessarily in Russia. It's going to play out in the developing world. Some people, you could call it the global south. These are all kind of imperfect terms, but it's going to play out in Africa. It's going to play out in Latin America. It's going to play out in the Pacific Island states. It's going to play out in Central Asia. It's going to play out in Ukraine and Moldova. And so these, much of this competition is not going to be military. Some of it is. I'm all for peace through strength, like Ronald Reagan's idea of peace through strength. I 100% subscribe to that. But I believe that much of this is going to be other forms of competition. It's going to be competing over vaccines. It's going to be competing over technology. It's going to be competing over values. It's going to be competing over infrastructure. It's going to be competing over the multilateral system. It's going to be competing over international education and training. So all of these things that are kind of development, international development, and things that are adjacent to development, if I could put it that way. So I think it's like, so I use the term soft power, another imperfect term, 
But my view is to say, okay, we need to have a 20-year strategy for the non-military dimensions of our competition. So let, let, let's talk about that, um, and we'll get into many of those elements you've articulated. Just one observation, you were, you were way too productive during COVID, uh, getting your kid become an Eagle Scout, being that Sherpa, getting another kid ready for college, and then writing a book that is putting the rest of us, at least me, to shame. So uh, congrats to you, and, and, and thanks for making me feel uh, totally uh, insufficient and, and not up to the task. I was but, trying to like manage my crazy at the time because it was like so stressful. Oh, no doubt. But that, that's, it's, congrats on being so productive. Uh, but this is a great subject, and it makes sense that you're putting this all in the bucket of soft power. And I think one of the things that I'd love for you to start with uh, before we get into the particulars, the regions, the nature of competition with China, all the different ways we engage in soft power, as you said, non-military, you know, I think Americans generally and conservatives especially might come at soft power as something that, you know, yeah, like squishy, uh, certainly not uh, the, the strength that we need. But I think also people don't appreciate this is not the sort of thing, Dan, um, that necessarily costs a lot, right? This is not, you could be effective at soft power without necessarily breaking the bank. Obviously, there's some investment, but certainly compared to national defense, it's modest by comparison. Explain to us kind of the economics and the investment required to be effective in soft power, and then we'll go in uh, to the to the elements of. Right, thanks. So I think we need to spend some money on non-military aspects of our power. I'm not necessarily calling for like a tripling of our foreign aid budget. I'm not saying that. I think there are some areas where we ought to make some targeted incremental increases in some areas. There are also maybe some places where we could make some cuts. Uh, it, but what I think, what I call for in my book is we need to do a top to bottom review of what's in the closed closet, how the, what the rule set is, where are we putting our people, time, and money, and then kind of rethink it for this new age. And so I think if you look at the amount of money we spend in what's called the 150 account, so Roger, you know the term, the 050 account, you're a defense guy. So the 050 account is like where the amount of money that we spend on defense. I don't know what the last year's defense budget was. Was it like, I don't know. We're, 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 we're knocking on $900 billion. We're in the mid 800s. So the total defense and development budget is about 50. So it's, I'm going to say it's like, you know, I don't know, like one, it's not one, it's like 5% or, you know, 5 to 7% of what we spend on defense. So I'm all for a strong defense budget. I believe in a 500 ship Navy. I think we need to kind of, I think there's a whole series of things that I'd look to you for and other thoughtful people in Washington on defense issues, the things that we need to do in the defense area. I'm, I'm in favor of what, what, whatever, you suggest we do to strengthen our military. I'm, I'm, I'm for sure I'm going to be in a bully, a supporter of that. But my thought is, is that so it's not the same amount of money. Now a lot of people say, well, this is, you know, there's all sorts of some of the foreign aid advocates will say, well, many people in the United States, when they're asked, they'll say, well, 20% of the federal budget goes into foreign aid. Now I think most of the folks on this podcast will know that's not the case. It's about less than one percent or less than one percent of our budget goes into foreign assistance and diplomacy. So I'm not saying we should go to like 2% or 3%, but I think we should think about some specific things. I think we ought, and there's some topics I'd ha be happy to talk about where I would put some additional money into some things as a result of sort of this aid to great power competition. But I would say that um, 
we don't do this alone. Foreign aid itself is sort of a theory of change. And I talk about this in the book. Foreign aid's not going to close the gap on global poverty. Foreign aid's not going to solve all of our challenges with with China and Russia, but they are a catalyst for things to help make- You need to have some money, but but, uh, to your point, Dan, there's the programs, there are people, there are expertise, there's our market, you know, yeah. there's our, there are approach to the global economy and trade that really are those elements of soft power, I think, and you, you could yeah. elaborate that really are advantageous to us economically and from a security standpoint and politically. Why don't you talk about a couple of the agencies? Um, uh, yeah. We'll start with the U.S., maybe we'll move to international organizations as well. Uh, that you feel perhaps don't get their due, but in your in, you know, to the point of your argument of your book, are really uh, meaningful in terms of advancing U.S. interests. What would be the one or two that you would just jump at? Okay, so one of the things I think we need to do more of is to have some targeted investments in bringing folks from developing countries study in the United States. So things like public health, urban planning, economics. There were two cohorts of technocrats in many developing countries who were ag ministers, finance ministers, prime ministers, presidents of central banks, foreign ministers, study the United States. We have a lot of people studying in the US and the world's changed from even 60 years ago. But when I go to a country, I ask two questions to developing country leaders. I say, where do you buy your weapons from? Because, and you'll appreciate this, Roger, like when you buy a weapons system, like you're buying a whole bunch of training and it's like a 20 year thing, you're getting, it's like buying an Apple system or a Microsoft system, right? Like right. you're going to kind of go down that road for 40 years, right? Airplanes or tanks or something like that, right? So that's my first question. My other question I ask is where are you sending your elites to study? Hmm. So if they say Beijing or they say Moscow, I get nervous. Now, if they say Tokyo, I'm like, great, thumbs up. If you tell me Australia, I'm like, great, thumbs up. If you say United States of America, I'd be even better. So we want people, I want 20 years from now, after they've studied, I want Boston on the speed dial, not Beijing on the mm-hmm. speed dial. Mm-hmm. So there's some specific, I'm not saying gobs and gobs of money, but we, we at one point, were training as many as 30, using foreign federal dollars to train as many as 20 or 30,000 students to get masters and PhDs in developing countries and then sending them back. Now, a lot of the world has changed a lot since then, but I still believe there's a role for some targeted spending, especially in places where we're competing with China, like the Pacific Island countries. I want them studying in the U.S. They're, they're right now saying to folks, hey, I'll send you to, for training in Beijing, all these places where like the Solomon Islands and this island chain stuff that you know more about than I do, Roger, in terms of first island chain and second island chain are saying like, hey, why don't you send your folks to learn nursing in Beijing? That's the, like, they, you know what I'm saying? Like, the, that's like, that is something we need to be so, aware of. So that's the so, first thing. So the education is the second one, right? We're, are we interacting with leads and there's value there? Obviously the, for the United States, we have relationships. Yeah. We're inclined to govern and lead along our values as opposed yeah. to Beijing. Um, I mean, that seems to be intuitive uh, and a valuable kind of asset for for u.s interests it's a lot the problem there's several problems with it one is it takes forever right it's like you go study for two years then 20 years later you become prime minister right right it's a super long-term investment so people are like and like your per beneficiary said well per beneficiary that's a lot of money well that's true but if you ask the aid people who operated in the 60s 70s 80s and 90s like the best investments we spent it was on that 
So I think there's, I'm not saying we should train 20,000, but we should look to identify two to 3,000 more a year. And we should partner with the private sector and philanthropy and universities and say like, let's be a little bit more strategic and kind of intentional about recruiting specific countries in specific countries, partner with our allies. Japan does a great job of this. Australia is a partner. So they don't have to stay in the, as long as they study in the West, like I'm kind of cool with it. But I think we need to think about this in like a more strategic, holistic way. Okay. We're talking to Dan Rundy, author of The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. A number of times already in our conversation, you're using China as a foil, the Chinese Communist Party, and, and, the, and you keep on referencing this term competition. If you and I would have had a conversation about your expertise uh, a decade ago, China may have come up, but you probably would have talked about development from the standpoint of how do we uh, help fledgling democracies? How do we help countries counter terrorism, for example, and the like? But your book does a fantastic job of really explaining what's at stake for the United States vis-a-vis China and the competition with China and how these soft power tools really could be determinative. Uh, Dan, from a purely kind of self-interest, national interest standpoint, just lay out as you do so well in the book, what China is doing, whether it's Belt and Roads Initiative or other activities that really are challenging us in terms of influence and partnerships, allies and friends, uh, and kind of expand the chessboard so it's not simply DC versus Beijing, but it's some of these other places you've described, whether it's this first island chain, second island chain, you mentioned the Solomon Islands, Global South. Explain to us how that comes together in the context of soft power. So China is making a play to push us out uh, as the world's leading power. We have been a beneficiary of being a rule maker, not a rule taker. And the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's murderous regime and sort of the Star Wars bar of bad guy countries, Iran and some others, North Korea, would like to kind of offset the West and rethink. I'd like your listeners to think about what are the things you most care about? Religious freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of association, economic stability, peace and stability in the world, scientific progress. Um, any decisions about your personal life. There's a whole series of things that are kind of undergirded by the system that was set up after World War II. If you care about environmental stewardship and climate, do you, does anyone really believe that the Chinese Communist Party and the coalition of bad folks that they're going to bring with them are, are going to be able to set rules and be better stewards of the global system? than the I think John Kerry believes that. He may be the only one. I worry about this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's the first thing I'd say to your listeners, that we need to understand like they are making a play to push us off being the top of the heap in terms of running the world. And like that has been a great thing for the world. We've had not a, we haven't had a third world war and we have been able to have the whole the international development projects, scientific project, democracy and human rights. These have all been undergirded by American leadership in the world. Okay. The second thing I'd say is, so for a lot of people who are in the defense world or national security people, some not you and not people like General Mattis, but there's a there's a there's a, a I'm not gonna call it a prejudice, but it's seen as like a little hippy dippy and a little kind of tree huggery, right? And it's like non-serious. So right. let me give some examples of why it's serious. So during COVID, 
I sat in my basement for a year in addition to like helping my kid get into college and Eagle Scout and the book, but I spent a year sitting in my, living in my basement and so did all of us on this podcast. So I was ecstatic when Pfizer and Moderna came out with their vaccines. I went out and got my vaccine, but there were only so many vaccines for rich countries. And because of different reasons, like we got to the front of the line. So I remember getting mine. And then we told thir- developing countries, we said, look, You've been to TGI Fridays, Roger. We gave him one of those buzzers at TGI Fridays. and said, well, don't worry, we'll buzz you. Right. Vaccines are ready, right? We did the TGI Fridays trip. So in the case of the Dominican Republic, the DR is led by a center-right government. who said, I'm thinking about re-recognizing Taiwan. COVID happened. And I'm going to kick Huawei out of the telecom system in the DR. So to... Uh, COVID happens, the Chinese show show up with a plane full of their crappy vaccines and say, the West has given you the TGI Fridays treatment. I'm going to give you my crappy vaccine called Sinovac. But I've heard this terrible rumor that you're going to re-recognize Taiwan. You wouldn't want to do that, would you? Oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And I've heard this terrible, we have this really fine firm called Huawei. We think you ought to include it in your telecom system. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to include it in our telecom system. So anyone says like it's hippy-dippy or it doesn't impact people, it does. Another example, Roger, is during- I just know with the Dominican Republic, Dan, great example. I mean, that's in our hemisphere. In our hemisphere. Same with Guatemala and El Salvador. Guatemala and El Salvador share a border. El Salvador recognized the People's Republic of China five years ago. Guatemala recognizes Taiwan. So we said to Guatemala, hang in there. We'll give you the TGI Fridays buzzer and we'll wait six to 12 months and we'll get to you once we take care of Pennsylvania. Like, I understand that. Politicians are going to pick Pennsylvania over Paraguay for vaccines every day of the week. As, as they should. As they should. I understand that. But I think there's like, and that's a separate, one of the topics, like if we were going to like think about where we're going to put some additional money is, there's going to be some other funny named vaccine that's going to force us into our basements again. God willing, God, I hope we don't have to do this again in our lifetime, right. but it'll happen. So we need better early warning systems. And we need better surge capacity so that we can provide vaccines for Paraguay and provide vaccines for the Dominican Republic and provide vaccines as opposed to saying, hang in there, man, we'll give you the TJ. Okay, great, great examples of how China exploits these opportunities and you know, whether it's recognition of Taiwan or them using, in the case of Dominican Republic, Huawei, of course, a state-owned enterprise that's putting their telecommunications equipment that work against our interests. And, and so you get, you get the feel from that, Dan, how these sorts of things impact our geopolitics. But let, let's stick on this theme here for a second, and then we'll, we'll jump, jump a little deeper in, into China and get your take on what its weaknesses are and challenges as well. You know, from the conservative mindset, like, hey, I have no problem engaging Guatemala or Dominican Republic but I don't want to give my tax dollars. Why don't we do some so, something where we're engaging with them uh, in terms of building out their free market, the sort of thing where we're, we're generating investment, but it's not on the tax paradigm. It's a, it's a kind of a win-win where we have the U.S. free market and the entrepreneurial spirit that the U.S. brings to drive that development and that economic cooperation, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. How do you, how do you think about that? But 100% love that. So when I learned international development theory was you need two things for progress. And and when you think about development, it's like a multi-dimensional, it's like economics, it's political, it's social. So you need a functioning state that's not too corrupt, 
my fingers on the scale of democratic governance. That's and so like good governance is the term of art. And then you need a growing formal private sector. So formal meaning like you pay taxes and follow the rules of the game in terms of treat people right and follow the labor rules and environmental rules. But that also means you get access to the capital markets and banks and things like that. And so most of the most the, the World Bank did a study about 15 years ago that said, okay, what percentage of the jobs in the developing world are in the private sector? It turns out nine out of 10 jobs are in the private sector. Some of that, much of that's in the informal sector. And what we want is to get people to move from the informal sector. So if, if Roger and I set up a kiosk that doesn't pay taxes, I want Roger and I to set up a chain of 7-Elevens that pay taxes, right? We want to do that. We want to move from one or two kiosks to setting up a, like a chain of 7-Elevens. That's the goal. So I think you, if you look at, there are many examples of countries that have escaped poverty. And so they've generally had good governance and they've had a growing private sector and then they've invested in their people, the kinds of concepts that were around the Millennium Challenge Corporation, Roger, sure. which we remember was set up in the Bush administration. And I will argue that people will look back on the Bush 43 administration as a golden age of global development. And unfortunately, in, in some ways, it's 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 gotten you know where it where people look back and say, boy, that was it's crowded out by Iraq and Afghanistan. They don't see it, but Millennium Challenge Corporation. I mean, that really had a transformative impact on Africa and and yeah. and public health and like all of that. So hundred percent. So I think um, so. You're absolutely right. And so there's a series of tools I talk about in the book. So I have a chapter on economic growth. I have a chapter on values, and so ultimately. Um, the best social program in the world is a job. I don't know if Ronald Reagan said that. I mean, can we Google that? We should... <laughs> he said that actually. That's not my favorite quote from Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I think it's one of his quotes. But look, ultimately, if you want to finance public goods like cops and health and education and infrastructure, you need a formal private sector that is growing that can pay taxes. Now there are exceptions to that. There are countries that have oil, gas, and mining revenues and you can finance it that way. But most developing countries finance their like public services. Some of it can be paid a little bit through foreign aid, but those are like super fragile or what are called failing states or super poor. But for the vast majority, it's about countries that have a growing private sector where people are willing to pay individual taxes, but also companies are paying taxes and people are investing in those countries. So you need good rules of the game, you want to reduce corruption, you want to have a functioning state, preferably a democratic state, and we ought to be pushing in that direction. So, let, so yeah. that, that all makes sense, but let's bring China into this and, and get you to respond to the following quandary, which we find ourselves in. You know, we've just articulated is that you're trying to identify good targets for development and cooperation between the United States and these countries either in the Western Hemisphere or across the world, Global South, elsewhere. And what's ideal, what you're seeking are countries that have this, you know, private sector, they're paying taxes, that is businesses, individuals, ideally they're, they're democratic, right? They're not corrupt. Once you start ticking off those ideal conditions, the number of countries that meet those categories go down. And then you contrast it, what appears to be the approach of the Chinese Communist Party. And what they've been doing over the past, you know, decade to two decades, which is like, well, we don't have any conditions of that kind. You know, you can be a corrupt regime, a non-democratic regime. You could have informal, you know, private sector where there isn't a great tax base. 
I don't care. I'll shake hands with the autocrat uh, and I'm going to go and, 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 and give him this loan predatory or not. And all of a sudden, you know, it's to your point before, you know, it's, it's not Boston, it's not Washington, it's, it's Beijing. So how much of our own kind of formal requirements and idealizing what type of partner we need to have to do this is somewhat undermining and opening the door, undermining our interests and opening the door uh, for Beijing. Take, take on that challenge, which you, you address in the book. Question, this is an excellent question. The, the, as part of this age of great power competition, we do not have a monopoly on let's call it soft power. We are in absolutely in a soft power competition. I would argue that in the last 10 years, there's been a wake up call about global infrastructure because a lot of multilateral development banks and aid agencies are like, I don't want to do infrastructure. It's too hard. Uh, environmental rules. Or we'd say like, hey, we'll do that, build that bridge through, but it's going to take us 10 years because we're going to spend like five years doing environmental stuff to kind of get it up to snuff. Now, I am not saying we Whereas should- China would not. China's like, we'll, we'll get that project started tomorrow. <laughs> right. I'm a tin pot dictator. And I have a choice between no bridge and a, bri a crappy bridge. I'm going with a crappy bridge. If I have the option of no vaccine or crappy vaccine, like I was talking about the DR, they're yeah. going with that. So China's able to, what's, the message of the book, one of the messages is, is China has the capacity along with its sidekick, it's Vladimir Putin's murderous regime, Russia, have the ability to some extent to fill voids that we leave behind. And that's different than 15 years ago, a little bit to your question earlier about like, well, how do we, so 15 years ago, this wasn't so much a thing, but today China's got the oomph, the power and the ability to project power in non-military ways. So we talk, you guys in, in the military world, you talk about China being a near peer military competitor. I would argue that China and Russia are near together, are near peer soft power competitors. And so yeah. this is what the problem is. And so we have, we are we have to go so on, you've seen this at, at the japanese aid agency called jica you've seen this at the asian development bank these are both kind of institutions led by japan they said we're going to go and if if you come to us with a project idea on infrastructure we will give you an answer within 11 months so that's not saying they throw out all, all their concerns about infra, uh, uh, environmental concerns or governance concerns or labor concerns but it's also like we need to have a different kind of process reengineering so that we don't we, we should continue to operate from a place of our values because that's part of like what we're about. That's what we're about. But we can't just say like, hey, hey we're, we have a monopoly on solving people. So we have to up our game. So to give us a, you, you have a couple of good recommendations, more than a couple in the book about how we up our game, how we have to kind of orient our institutions to compete. One that interests me is the DFC, Development Finance Corporation, which I think for conservatives, those who know about it, it's the sort of institution that, uh, lines up with, with 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 their outlook right with with a market outlook which essentially it's not government dollars as much as government backed loans and the like to to support development is, is that an example uh yeah and where where we're, we're kind of putting ourselves in position to compete and we're not taking years uh to to respond to a country's needs whereas you know china's doing it in days so i think so look, so I was an architect of something called the Build Act, which you know what that is, Roger, but your listeners, that was the via, the legislative vehicle to create the DFC from OPIC. I'd worked on Wall Street. I'd worked at a commercial emerging markets commercial bank in Argentina for Citibank. I'd worked at an aid agency. I'd worked at something called the DFI, Development Finance Institution. 
So I started working on this about 10 years before the passing, six, seven or eight years before the passage of the Build Act. And uh, it, it's clear to me that most, a little bit to your, some of your comments earlier, Roger, like, look, foreign aid's important, but what we have to do, there's lots of thinking about things like crowding in private capital. We've got our capital markets and savings and leveraging all this private money. So if you can find ways to crowd, ultimately private money is much, much bigger than foreign aid, foreign direct investment, savings, even in developing countries in terms of, or the taxes collected by it through the private sector. So foreign aid, the UN will recognize and say, foreign assistance is catalytic. So we need to think about how we use instruments like the Development Finance Corporation, which is up for reauthorization in about 18 months. So we're doing some work at my day job at CSIS to think about like what tweaks can we make to the Development Finance Corporation now that we've had three and a half years. So the Build Act and the DFCs are, are a really important thing. It's an important instrument. What it does is it can make, it can lend money for specific projects in countries where maybe banks don't want to lend. It can also provide loan guarantees to banks that you know might not lend to certain sectors if it didn't kind have- Kind of de-risks it, right? De-risk it for the banks. De-risks it, exactly. They also are doing things like, for example, I was in Ukraine about two months ago with President Zelensky um, uh, wearing a different hat, and there were several uh, investors around the table for a new investment fund. I represent, I'm on the board of an enterprise fund set up in the Clinton administration that uh, invests in Ukraine and Moldova. And so we invest, we spun out a private equity fund about 17 years ago called the Horizon Capital Fund. So the parent company is an investor in the fourth, new fourth fund. The Development Finance Corporation, the DFC, is also an investor in the fourth fund. So the, the head of the DFC, I represented our, the board of this enterprise fund, but there are about eight of these development finance institutions from eight European Europe and the International Finance Corporation and EBRD and the DFC. So the DFC can also invest in funds and can support that. They also, so, so yes, so, they're so an important instrument. Dan, you know, you, you referenced on 18 months, Congress will have to reauthorize it. I mean, continue yeah. this, to this, their mission going. It's uh, an example of a tool that really leverages our capital markets, our private sector, um, and, and through that, right, the capital that, of course, the West has built and done so much with, right, the capital markets, free enterprise. Have you seen, Dan, success and this is there one DFC example or something where you've seen, okay, we've actually leveraged this tool and it's had, you know, it's displaced a competitor in terms of China. It's advanced uh, a partner, a country that is of, of interest to us that you could point to. I mean, I think that's generally what policymakers and frankly, listeners want. Hey, that sounds great. But did we beat, push out China? Do we push out the Russians? Or, or is there something we could point to or say, hey, it's, it's, it's actually had, you know, a good impact. Anything that... That is where kind of the concept of this tool and the, and the theory, you know, kind of it, right we had sufficient time to, to see it in practice. That's how it was sold. So I think they would say they would probably have better examples than I have now. And I but I think, Roger, you're asking the exact right question. And so we're going to be doing a session later this week. And I'm going to say to folks, hey, folks, I was on a podcast with Roger and I want to <laughs> actually think it's a really great question. But my, my answer, I'll go back to what I know, which is this example in Ukraine. This fund, this private equity fund, Horizon Capital, has been in existence for 15 years. They've, they're launching a fourth fund that is specific to rebuilding the country of Ukraine. So, you, you know, what we want to do is we're going to have, we want to be able to have a Ukraine that is as wealthy as Poland, 
has agriculturally productive as Canada, has the manufacturing heft of Germany, has the tech capacity of Silicon Valley, has the defense industrial base of Israel, mm. and it's fully embedded in the European Union. And hope, hopefully, if you ask me, a member of NATO at some point, and you, you, you'll have more thoughtful views about that than I have. But I would just say that part of that has been, okay, so the DFC is in essence making a big bet by putting money into this equity fund on reconstructing Ukraine. They're making a big bet that there are going to be an amazing, and there are some amazing entrepreneurs in Ukraine. This is a very highly educated society, very technically sophisticated business class and scientific class. There's going to be enormous business opportunities. And if they're fully plugged into the European Union and the West, there's no reason they couldn't be, they're one fourth the level of development of Poland. That's crazy. Mm. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons has been that they didn't have a path to the EU and they didn't plug into the EU. Some of it also is they've had crappy governance. Right. I think also this war, people are going to come back and say, like, I didn't fight for crappy governance. I fought for better governance. And my deepest thought after having, we're running a big Ukraine reconstruction commission at CSIS. My deepest thought after about 200 meetings and 30 seminars and a lot of papers is we got to align all reconstruction of Ukraine with EU accession. It's like being, what I say to people is like, what would you have done to join the coolest fraternity or the coolest sorority in college? Like what do you think you would put up with? So your electorate, your political class, your leadership, your business leadership really want to join the EU. And it's like, we miss, we don't underappreciate or understand that in Washington, but it's like joining the coolest fraternity, the coolest story. What easing, what reforms would you do? What difficult things would you do to join? That's in essence what it is. And it also will turn on a tap of reconstruction monies that Europe has. And we want to have burden. I know the Europeans are doing burden sharing, but we should expect even more of the Europeans. Well, that's where I was going to go, right? I mean, you talk about the EU and, and EU accession, and that's what's going to put the Ukrainians on a firmer economic and political footing. That's intuitive. That makes sense, Dan. Um, but of course we have $32 billion of us taxpayer money. Um, well, you have, uh, uh, that's gone security and then you have a slightly less amount, but still in the, in the tens of billions, I think it's over $20 billion going on the development side for Ukraine. Uh, from your standpoint, those billions is 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 what just a kind of a, a down payment on the sort of investments going to be required from the world and and particularly the EU to see uh, Ukrainian reconstruction. Look, I think that this is a, it's it's a, the numbers are eye boggling, right? These numbers are they get your attention. They're just the num We don't know how big the the price tag is. This is this is out. You know, I think everyone on this podcast will appreciate that Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine is just um, really crossed a whole series of red lines. The level of destruction that they're doing on a developed European country is just out. It's just disgusting and it's just unspeakable. It's not right. I also think what what the argument I would make to folks is compared to what. Do we really think Russia, the Russians would like to make a play to take back the Baltic states. The Russians would like to make a play to take pieces of Poland and, uh, and, and Moldova. So at some point, in, in many ways, Ukraine is the shield of Europe and in many ways, the shield of the West. We're not sending American boys and girls to die in Ukraine. And so 
they are not asking for that. Have you been surprised just sticking on Ukraine here and, and going back to the domestic element? It's it's become kind of front and center, Dan, in uh, the emerging Republican race to become the nominee for the presidential uh, nominee. Um, Tucker Carlson, probably one of his first questions is whether or not the United States to continue to support and 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 finance security and of course certainly beyond security he'd be skeptical of the ukrainians um and you know the presidential candidates are, are breaking down uh vivek Raswami, you know and and president trump um and ron DeSantis, generally you know on the more skeptical side and then you have vice president pence uh asa hutchinson nikki haley uh tim scott you know they're all on the more supportive side are you surprised that Ukraine now has become, in, in, in some ways, this uh, almost bellwether of, of, of where you stand as, uh, as a Republican seeking the nomination. And because it really goes not only security issues, but, but the, the sorts of issues that you're talking about, uh, American leadership in the world, and, and uh, whether we should be investing in, in friends and partners, uh, you know, kind of with this, this level of investment. So, Roger, thanks for asking me. The, the best thing I've heard all month, in addition to... Uh, you know, the, the best thing I've heard all month was the analysis that came out of the Reagan Foundation on polling. And I'm, I'm hope you'll you'll share a little bit about, but it showed that there remains a significant and even a majority of support within the Republican Party among Republicans to support for Ukraine. And I think that's really important. I think 80% of the House Republican Caucus and 80% of the Senate Republican Caucus voted for the May 2022 aid package for Ukraine, military and non-military. Do I think 80% of Republicans in the House and Senate would do that again? There'll be some kind of a supplemental ask later this fall. It'll probably be in October or November. I think the Biden administration is hoping to be able to demonstrate some progress, military progress on the ground. And I, I, you know, I think America likes a winner. If they're winning on the battlefield and we can decide what winning, you know, winning is, could mean lots of different things. But if they're seen as making some kind of progress on the ground and have the Russians on their back heel, I think it'll be hard for the Congress to not provide another aid package. My hope is that they would provide an aid package from sort of November 1 through November 15th or December 1 after our presidential election, because this is going to be we're not going to want to have to do this again a year from now. Yeah, it's it, yeah, absolutely. And, you, and you're referencing the Reagan summer survey. And you're right. It showed that over 75% of Americans want, you know, see it's within the United States interest to see Ukraine win. Uh, over 70% of Republicans share that view, see it's in the U.S. interest to see Ukraine win. A majority of Republicans uh, believe that it was worth supporting Ukraine in terms of giving taxpayer dollars uh, to, you know, paying for equipment that we're delivering to Ukraine. Uh, and then even the Republicans, only 41% want to continue it. But when you tell them Dan, we've discussed this, that Ukraine holds 83% of their territory, that we've degraded the Russian military, uh, and it's been about 3% of one year's defense budget. There's about an 18-point swing amongst Republicans, and it goes over 50%. So there is, you know, as, uh, kind of data to show that Republicans will be supportive of this, provided that, you know, you're, you're, you're sharing this information and things go the way you've described. But there is no doubt elements within the Republican Party that are that really believe, hey, why are we spending money to defend Ukraine's sovereignty, defend their borders? Shouldn't we spending that money to make sure our borders are defended 
our our sovereignty is enforced here talking about immigration dan and and, and the like um you know interesting you see some of uh the commentaries ben shapiro saying hey these these are not mutually exclusive it's an and not an or my words not his but effectively we're saying um but is this the sort of thing where you're saying your work your your focus on american leadership and soft power is being hurt by the ukraine debate or is it just so much as so is kind of riding on it so i think a lot's riding on the ukraine debate and i think that i i believe that um we have to think about, we also have to understand, Republicans need to understand that China is watching what's happening in Ukraine. If Russia is seen as having an acceptable enough price to do Ukraine, if I can put it that way, uh, Xi Jinping is going to say, well, if that was, I could take that hit too. I can take that hit in lives. I can take that hit in economy, but I want to go down as the greatest uh, dictatorial leader of China in the last hundred plus years, and I'm going to do Taiwan. And so everyone that thinks that this is going to, what happens in Ukraine is going to stay in Ukraine, we're all fooling ourselves. That's not the case. So we need to understand that there are much bigger issues at play and that if people think that Vladimir Putin's just going to stop at Ukraine, he ain't going to just stop at Ukraine. He wants to put the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire back together again. He's a neo-czarist or something, something bad. He's a, <laughs> a bad dude. This is a very bad person. He and Xi Jinping are bad, evil leaders. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. It's really simple. And so I think that um, on Ukraine, I know that I think there's remains a temptation. There's been a strain within the Republican Party, and you know this, and you saw this in the book, and, and you know people have done a better job of this than I have in, in other books, but Arthur Vandenberg led the Republican Party after, uh, after the war to sell NATO and the Marshall Plan and gave up his presidential ambitions to stay as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to make those things happen. He also led within the Republican Party at a key meeting in Michigan on Mackinac Island. He basically uh, repositioned the Republican Party as a conservative internationalist party, which I subscribe, I'm a member of that wing of the Republican Party. And so there have been, there were historically more isolationist strains and voices. And so I think that through the Cold War, we were able to engage in this. I think so many people have argued it, that really I'm not I'm wrong, that it's not a great power competition, that we're in a second Cold War. I've eschewed that term. Newt Gingrich, when I was on his podcast, Hugh Hewitt, when I was on his radio show, said, no, Dan, I disagree with you. This is a second Cold War. So I, I don't I, I don't know where you stand on that, but I've, I've kind of like I'm doing a little duck and dodgy and doing like well, the well i mean I'm glad let's get into that let's talk about china real quick and then we'll 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 wrap up with our lightning round but dan um why do you as you say excuse the term why do you not view this as you know a second cold war what, what, what kind of what, what what chips you up about that so here's my concern about it i think i'd like to think we may still have a chance for an off-ramp with china like i don't want to get into a full-on hot war with china and i don't want to get into a so I'd like to think maybe they'll run out of gas, demographic gas, and maybe it'll kind of like, it'll maybe, but maybe I'm being too Pollyannish. But I think the term second Cold War, I think has a finality about it. Maybe this is like spending too much time in an academic institution and right. due to intellectual, but I've, I've stayed away from it also because I think a lot of people on the left aren't ready to go there yet. Well, so, that, that may be the case. I'll take a, a minute just to share my view on it. We've been discussing this and, you know, I, you look at the Cold War, one of the, the things I didn't fully appreciate until I've done some research and see, kind of looked at how people treated the period. You know, when Jimmy Carter was president, 
the mindset that was essentially uh, developed through the detente policy that Nixon started with, with Kissinger was that the Cold War was over. <laughs> they had actually looked at the Soviet Union and because they had relaxed tensions, the mindset and what they sold to the American people was that the Cold War was over. And, and uh, the result was they were mugged by reality, Dan, right? It was, it was uh, increasing aggression and expansion by the Soviets while the United States just convinced themselves that they were relaxing tensions and there was uh, nothing to see here. And ultimately, you know, Ronald Reagan, the man over your left shoulder there, uh, was pretty pivotal uh, in waking up the United States and saying, hey, uh, two, you know, it, there, there are two parties involved here. And while we're saying what the war is over, the other one is, is full on engaging and making advances and we need to counter it. And so I think in that respect, the Cold War construct is useful because it is a full-on competition. With the Biden administration, I think they would love to relax tensions in, in very similar ways with the mindset that we saw from detente, uh, and they're seeking opportunities of cooperation. Uh, that may be useful in some ways. Certainly, I think there's a, a need to have communication, which is different than cooperation. We can't even get that from the Chinese. But... Um, in, in many respects, I think the, the Cold War aspects are, 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 are fully in place on the security realm, uh, certain economic uh, realm, certain way, in, in your world, the one you've written about, we're seeing it on the development side, too. And I think we just need a posture that, that counters it, how we offer it, but how we resolve it, you know, whether that's containment, uh, a form of detente, or rollback, you know, that, that is an important debate, which you and I won't have here. But I think the Cold War construct offers us much more uh, than, it, than it takes away. Uh, so, you know, perhaps we come back I, another time and discuss it. I'm prepared to be, I'm prepared to be, to follow your lead on that. I think that's, uh, I hear you, Roger, and I think that's a, that's a strong argument in favor of framing it as a, a second Cold War. Let's I, go ahead, finish up there, Dan. Just, just, I think that, um, I do think whether it's great power competition or it's a second Cold War, it, my argument is, we, that most of this co this this competition or whatever we want to call it is going to my message is the same which is in my book of the american imperative which is to say look much of it is going to be non-military and yeah. we're going to need to up our non-military game to kind of respond to this challenge and my message also is we cannot fight something with nothing so we can't say to people don't take their belt and road money don't don't build that bridge with them don't take their crappy vaccines. Don't take their crappy ventilators. That is not a strategy. That doesn't mean we have to provide it ourselves. We have to enable an alternative. Sometimes that's from the private sector. Sometimes that's from a multilateral development bank. Sometimes it's with us. Sometimes it's in coalition or sometimes it's one of our partners. But we cannot fight something with nothing. Great point. And, and your book does a really excellent job of explaining how U.S. government, U.S. government agencies have a role to play here out of the private sector, and we didn't get a chance to jump into it, but multinational organizations as well, something, again, conservatives are deeply skeptical of, but if you play it the right way and you engage, it could advance your interests. If you simply fold your arms, frown, and sit on the sidelines, you're really opening the door, as you point out, to the Chinese Communist Party to exploit those organizations, which were built really to advantage us, <laughs> that is the United States interests, and now it's it's gone a different direction. Let's move to our lightning round. Sure. Here's where we ask Dan, all our guests, to share their favorite Reagan speech, their favorite Reagan quote, and favorite Reagan book. Give us one, two, or all three. What do you got? My favorite Reagan book is The Peacemaker by Will Imboden. I loved his book. 
I think everyone ought to go out and read Will and Bowden's book. I think you, I, I know, I think you all have been, you were generous to host him. I think recently yeah. you've had him on your podcast. People ought to go out and read Will and Bowden's really excellent book, sort of a history of Reagan's foreign policy. And, sort and of the authoritative treatment from beginning to the end of his presidency. It's, it's the, and it's, a, it's a sympathetic and authoritative. And I love the book, Will and Bowden's The Peacemaker. My favorite speech was the a time for choosing the 1964 speech when Barry Goldwater was the nominee. It was the moment when Ronald Reagan, it was the a star is born, a Republican <laughs> star is born. I've had all of my three children listen to the 1964 speech. It still sends chills down my spine and speaks to me at a deep spiritual level. And my favorite quote is from that speech. There's several favorite quotes, but let me just read the quote. Give that it I to love. us, yep. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We will preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we will sentence them to take the first step into a thousand years of darkness. If we fail, at least let our children and our children's children say of us, we justified our brief moment here. We did all that could be done. And I still think, Roger, that quote matters. I think we're in a serious challenge with the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's murderous regime. The stakes are really high. And so I want to say that I want our kids and my grandkids to say that folks like you and me did all that we could have done at this moment. So I'm, I wrote this book to sound an alarm and to say that we've got an upper game. We can't fight something with nothing. They have the power to fill voids we leave behind. Much of this competition is non-military, but I like our odds. I'd rather be us than them, but it means we have to get our act together. And we ultimately probably need a bipartisan consensus on what we need to do for about 20 years. If we had, you know, several, you know, kind of two or three functioning, you know, strong governments that kind of focused on this in a, in a strategic way and in a, in a strategic way in the Congress, I think we could put this, we could, we could get, make a lot of progress on this. I also ultimately think, Roger, that their demography stinks. So if we don't get into a shooting war and we don't get into a, you know, we yeah, they have they have some real challenges, no doubt. Real challenges. I think it was the guy from the Leadership Institute, is it Morton Blackwell, who a lot of Republican conservative political yeah. leaders have gone to his political school, says, you know, don't underestimate that your adversaries always got troubles too. They got a lot of problems. Exactly. Well, Dan, thank you for being on the show. Love the quote, rendezvous with destiny, oh. Reagan channeling FDR. There's your bipartisanship right there in his own words. Congratulations on your book. Look forward to having you back. Thanks, Roger. This was awesome. I'm really grateful. Thanks, ma'am. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.